John chapter 1. It only took us eight Sundays, but we will now finish chapter 1 today. (laughs) I know it's a little faster than I normally go. John wrote his gospel, he tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that you might believe. These things are written that you might believe. Jesus did lots of things, but I've specifically selected certain events, certain things that happened, certain things he said, certain things he did, certain testimonies that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you might have life through his name. And so we've been going through this first chapter, and John's been calling these witnesses to the stand to testify to us that we saw his glory. This is our testimony of who Jesus is. And what we're finding out is that when individuals spend a little bit of time with Jesus, he radically changes their lives. When Andrew and John spent one evening with Jesus, they were forever different. They went to tell their brothers, Peter and James, and their testimony was simple. We found him. We found the Messiah. Come and meet him. Well, they weren't the only ones that decided to follow Jesus in those first few days after John declared, behold, the Lamb of God. Today, we're going to meet a man that Jesus sought out. And after he spends some time with Jesus, he's going to go find a friend and he's going to tell him the same thing. We found him. Come and see. So John chapter 1, we pick it up in verse 43. It says, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said unto him, come and see, come and see. Well, it says in verse 43, the day following. From verse 19 to this verse, John records four consecutive days. The first day in verse 19 is where the religious leaders come from Jerusalem and they question John the Baptist. Then we have the next day where John the Baptist proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. Then the next day where John and Andrew follow Jesus and they stay with him. And now this day. On this day, It says, Jesus had wanted to go forth into Galilee. It means he had desired or decided. And the verb tense conveys the idea that this has been Jesus' plan all along. He had planned to come down to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing for a little bit, and then he was going to head up north back to Galilee. Likely because he'd been invited to a wedding in Cana that would be three days from this day. So that was the plan. Leave today, go to Galilee. But then it says here, instead of doing that, he says, and he finds Philip. This word finds here is a different tense of a verb, and it conveys a more immediate decision. In other words, he decides that morning, I've got to go find this guy named Philip before I go. And he finds him, and he says to him, follow me, become my disciple. Most of us came to salvation because another believer invited us to come and see, right? Someone told us about Jesus. You heard a teaching, went to a church service, a friend invited you there, whatever it might be. Most of us have stories like Peter and Andrew. But Jesus does go and seek some out on his own. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you came to Jesus without any invitations. I have contacts with some people who do missions work in the Middle East and, and closed countries where you can't just go and, as a missionary. And, and, and they'll say, you know, Muslims 
keep saying, they keep coming out and saying, you know, Jesus appeared to me in a vision and told me to go to this church or told me to go to this, this person or whatever and to find out more. So, I mean, these are things that happen. Maybe that happened to you. It just The Lord confronted you, you know, on the road to Damascus with Paul, remember? Paul, there's nobody else involved in this process. Paul's riding on the way to Damascus and boom, Jesus shows up. And here's at one moment that he's planning to go arrest Christians, kill Christians. And the next moment he's saying, what do you want me to do, Lord? Like, I mean, an encounter with Jesus, there was no one else involved. Sometimes that happens. This shows how extensive God's love is for us, that He knows what we need to experience to put us in the best place to make a decision to follow Him. Alexander McLaren said this, he said, whether we seek Him or no, there is no heart upon earth which Christ does not desire. And no man or woman within the sound of his gospel that he is not in a very real sense seeking that he may draw them to himself. That's the Lord. He loves us. He wants us to be with him. And so he knows what we need to experience to put us in the best place to make a decision to follow him. Now, some might say, well, why doesn't Jesus come and find me? I would love to have a dream from God or I would love to have Jesus appear to me. My experience over the years with individuals who are resistant to the gospel is that even if I answer all their questions, even if I deal with all their objections adequately, they still don't necessarily believe. I remember I had a conversation with one gentleman one time, and I I just, I was having dinner with him, and I asked him, I said, nothing I say is going to change your mind, is it? And he just shook his head and said, no. If you're wondering, you know, well, why, why doesn't Jesus do these things for me? My question to you is, would you really follow Jesus if he did? Why do you need a dream or a visitation from God when the majority of people through history have believed because of someone else's testimony? It's the easy path to find fault with God because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. It's much harder to ask myself the important question, which is, Why do I need God to do this in order for me to believe? That's the real question. Now, I'm not telling you how you should answer that. I just, that's the question you should ask. Would it really make a difference if God appeared to me like this or he came and found me in this way? Some would say, well, I don't need to ask those type of questions. I'm not interested in that. Or I've heard some say, why would I ask a question of someone I don't even believe he exists? Or I don't believe the Bible's real. Like, why would I even waste my time asking a question? To which I would say, how many hours a week do you waste trolling the internet about things that aren't true? How much time do you spend on TV watching things that aren't true and then going in on message boards and forums and blog posts to find out what they think about the show that's not true? The the reality isn't, why would I waste my time doing something that I don't believe is, or questioning something I don't believe is true, or diving into a topic that I don't believe in. The question really is, is why do I feel like it's just okay for me to take the time to think about things I want to think about? See, it's a preference. It's not that I'm interested in truth. It's a preference. And when I decide, well, I certainly don't have a problem thinking of things I don't think are true on the one hand, but this I have no interest in or I don't like it or I don't like what it says, so I won't. I'm not really being honest with myself. It's not really, I shouldn't call it why I don't have an, you know, I I don't believe it. No, it's just don't care. 
So, again, I think it's important for us to take the time to ask, why do I need God to do X, Y, Z in order for me to believe? And would I if he did it? Now, for some of us, the answer is yes, we would believe. We, we sincerely needed a boost. Some of, some of you have that kind of a story of how you came to salvation. But for most of us, the problem isn't with what God has or has not done. It's our refusal to believe because God doesn't fit what I want him to be. I'd be interested in God if he was like this. And there's the little side effect of that, which is if he doesn't have to fit what I want him to be, it means I don't get the final say in what happens to me and to those around me. Well, Jesus makes it very clear from, to Philip from the get-go who will be calling the shots. He says, follow me. And then Philip has a choice to make, right? Say yes or no. I wonder why Jesus decided to go find Philip. Like, I mean, it's, here you are, you get your God, right? And you've got everything planned out, which, by the way, is kind of an interesting thought, that Jesus woke up that morning and is like, I've got to go find Philip. You didn't go to bed knowing that? Like, how is this immediate and not part of the plan? Because he's also fully human, right? We'll dive into this a little bit later, that contrast, but but he woke up that morning, and he's like, I gotta go find Philip. Like, so was this something maybe the father put on his heart to do? Or is it possible that Jesus went to go find Philip because Peter and Andrew asked him to? Because verse 44 says, now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, Bethsaida is a fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's not living there currently, so when it says he's from there, he and his brother are from there, it means that's where they were born, that's where they grew up. Peter's currently living in the city of Capernaum, we know from other scriptures, which is another fishing village in the same area. So these guys were born in Bethsaida, grew up together, maybe even were friends. So maybe they asked Jesus, hey, we got a friend Philip who's in town, can you go, go get him too? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever the reason, Jesus tells Philip to follow him. And how does Philip respond? The Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, we know he went with Jesus, but it doesn't tell us how he responded or what he said. All I know is this, that whatever happened after he said yes, the time with Jesus had a radical impact on Philip, so much so that it becomes convinced immediately that Jesus is the Messiah, because look at verse 45. And Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now that word finds is in the same way that Jesus went to find Philip, as an decision. It wasn't the normal plan for the day, but all of a sudden he goes, I got I to tell, tell my friend Nathaniel. Now, who is Nathaniel and how does Philip know him? Well, in John chapter 21, verse 2, it tells us that Nathaniel was from the city of Cana. Most people believe that he is, in the other gospels, he's the disciple whose name is Bartholomew. There are three reasons for this belief. Number one, because church tradition claims it to be the case. In other words, it's not that church tradition is perfect or it's scripture. That's not the case at all because human beings make mistakes. However, if you're closer to the situation or if you're closer to the target or further from the target, who's more likely to hit the bullseye? Someone who's closer. So we do take that into account that the people who lived and were in contact with the guys who these guys led to Christ, that they would have more access to information than we would. So the tradition is, is that he was Bartholomew. Second, the second reason is because Bartholomew is a surname. It's like my last name. Bartholomew just means son of Ptolemy. 
So his first name, Nathaniel, son of Tolmai. Like Peter, his real name is Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon Bar-Jonah, Nathaniel Bartholomew. Thirdly, they say this is because he's always attached, Bartholomew is always attached to Philip in the list of disciples, and we know they have a connection here. It's possible he was a different guy, just a regular disciple that appears a couple times in the book of John. It's possible he's not one of the apostles, but I do agree that he's the same person as Bartholomew. I won't fight you over it, but I do think that's probably who he is. So he's a friend of Philip's, clearly, and Philip goes and finds his friend and says the same thing Andrew told Peter, we found him. But he says it a little differently. He goes, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. He says, he's not just a good rabbi. He's not just an anointed person, but he's the guy. He's the anointed one that the entire Old Testament predicted would come. Now, as I said, John is bringing up people to give their personal testimony about seeing Jesus' glory and their, what, what their declaration was. And this is their personal testimony. This is Philip's personal testimony, I should say. It's similar to Andrew's, but with more emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the Scriptures, that Jesus is the one that the Bible foretold would come. Now, why would he say that? Well, because Jesus fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies during his time on earth. You look at the things that were predicted about the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. Now, the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those over 300 prophecies in his lifetime is one in 10 octillion. That's 24 zeros after the 10. That's crazy. Let me give you a little bit of perspective. The odds of being struck by lightning in a year are one in 700,000. The odds of becoming president are one in 10 million. The odds of a meteorite landing on your house is one in 180 trillion. That's just 12 zeros compared to 24. That's just for eight. Jesus didn't fulfill just 80. He fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies during his time on earth. Guys, we have indeed found the one that the Scriptures foretold. We have. One of the reasons that it's so important that we study and read the Old Testament is because it was Philip's evidence, and it's ours too. Like, we can look at the Old Testament and go, there's Jesus right there. There's Jesus right there too. God kept His Word. God kept His promise. You know, we have the evidence that Philip gives to us. He gives his testimony. So what will you do with that evidence? John recorded it for you and me so that we might believe. So will you believe it or will you reject it? If you've grown up in church, one of the things that's easy to become desensitized to is prophecy, especially if you attend church here, because we talk about it. It's easy to just kind of think, oh, that's the norm. But I mean, how would you respond if you found out that somebody out there was predicting a bunch of things and they were actually true, like they were actually happening? You'd be like, I want to find out what this guy's take on the stock market is. <laughs> we tend to kind of be wowed when someone's doing these types of things. It's why people go to fortune tellers in a day and age like this where we would say we're so intellectual, and they still do it. I remember my reaction to hearing about a guy named Nostradamus. Anybody ever heard of him? I was uh, probably 10 years old, maybe 11 years old, 
And uh, I was watching at that time. He was he'd kind of come back into the limelight, and people were, you know, doing all these documentaries on him and stuff. And I remember I was watching one particular episode on TV, and I'd seen it a few times. And he was mentioning about you know how he predicted there'd be an antichrist in this day and age, and then he predicted this antichrist, and like Hitler fulfilled all the prophecies perfectly, and, and then he predicted there's one coming, and then bring World War III and destruction everywhere, and blah blah blah. And I remember I was like, man, Dad, that's scary. I mean, I, that's weird. This guy predicts some things, and I'm not a believer at the time. My dad's not a believer at the time, and uh, but my mom was a believer, and my mom had been working on my dad for a while, and so my dad had taken some interest in the Bible, even though he really didn't wasn't wasn't born again. And so I said, this is crazy. All this stuff's going to happen. People are going to die, whatever. That's horrible. He goes, yeah, well, the, the Bible actually talks about that. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there's going to be persecuted people and a bunch of people die and all this stuff and plagues and whatever. And I'm like, why am I just hearing about this now? I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Because even though I'd, I wasn't a believer at the time, I'd grown up in Catholic school, so I had, I had proximity to Jesus and to the Bible and to religious things and ideas about God that are found in, in the Bible. And so I had some kind of a sense of like, like weird pseudo-respect for God. And so I was like, well, I, I don't want to get in trouble. Like, I don't want, I don't want to go through this. Where, where do I find out more about this? And so uh, my dad gave me a book that my mom had asked him to read. It didn't work for him at that time. He got saved shortly thereafter, but, but he gave it to me, and it's called A New World Coming by Hal Lindsey. And I remember reading through the book, and it didn't help. I became more frightened because he's talking about all the Old Testament prophecies. And I guess what I'm telling you is, like, I was wowed because some French philosopher or whatever got a few ideas that people, a few vague, weird, poetic lines he wrote, and they said, that's Hitler. I was so wowed by that. But then I, I read about the Bible and what it says, and I was like, whoa. Like, I was so, it blew me away, and it got hold of, hold of my heart to the point where I'm like, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to experience that. I, I don't want to have this mark put in my hand. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go through any of this stuff. How do I get out of this? And of course, you know how Lindsay shares the gospel all throughout the book, and it was just shortly thereafter, my dad got saved, started going to church, and then I got saved. Had a big impact upon me. We hear about things that, you know, somebody's predicting this or that, and they get right, and we go, wow. The Bible's full of it, full of predictions. We should never become desensitized to it because it's evidence. What will you do with it? Will you believe it? Will you minimize it or will you reject it? Well, he says to him, we found him. And who is he? His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. Nazareth is where Jesus lived and grew up with his mother Mary, his father Joseph. Joseph is dead by this time. And Philip's claim would have been great until the last part. His evidence is dampened by his final claim. The Messiah is from Nazareth? That's like saying the Messiah is from Bithlo. <laughs> Apologies if you're from Bithlo. And so Nathaniel says to him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Literally, is it possible for that to exist? Something that something with the imprint of Nazareth could be good? Nazareth, the word means branch, shoot, or sprout. Nazareth is literally bean town. It's nowhere. It's twig down. It overlooked the Jezreel Valley from the north, so it had a pretty view, but it was a small village, unimportant in the region. The Roman roads didn't even pass through it. Cana's, Nathaniel's hometown of Cana was on the hill next over, 
which means of all the earliest disciples, he would have been the most knowledgeable about Nazareth. And in his mind, he thought, I don't, I can't think of anything important or meaningful that's ever come out of Nazareth. Are you sure? It didn't help that the religious teaching of the day was that no prophet would ever emerge from the Galilee region. The rabbis taught that the Galilee region was too backward, it was too unspiritual. Sadly, they ignored the scripture, which said otherwise. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, it said the Messiah would be, come from the tribal areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are, is the area of Galilee. So Philip responds to Nathaniel's objection. He says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I've read a few books on the apologetics of Nazareth. Is that what he does? Note that Philip doesn't argue with him about Nazareth. He doesn't argue with him about prevailing religious ideas. He just says, come and see. Come meet him, Nate. Come. Meeting him will overcome whatever issues you have. Now, I'm the first to say I'm all for being able to give answers for why I believe something, especially when it comes to a topic that's kind of a hot topic out there and people are confused about, and maybe there are some challenging things you need to figure out as you're working through that issue. I love getting a good book on it. Somebody who's explored it. I love studying all that stuff. I love digging into the Bible to try to understand it better. Love doing all that. Sometimes that can help a person work through their objections to following Jesus. But the truth is, seeing Jesus personally is the only thing that's going to convince somebody to change their mind. That's the truth of it, which is why we need to show people Jesus through both our words and our actions. I would encourage you, like if you are interacting with somebody and, and, and you're sharing the gospel with them, you know, offer to read John with them. Be like, you know, I don't know about that. I'll tell you what, listen, why don't you, would you be willing to do me a favor? Would you read John chapter 1? You can go online and get it on your phone, whatever. It's real easy. Read it, and I'll read it too, and then we can talk about it when we have lunch again. Or ask them if they're willing to read John and then, and then talk about it. I'm nowhere near the most knowledgeable person when it comes to God or the Bible, but given my experience, I can usually answer most objections to the faith that people bring up. I've been able to show someone their wrong assumptions about the Scripture or about Jesus or their wrong perceptions or their flat-out misunderstanding of a passage of the Bible. But that has rarely been the thing that changes their mind. Usually, it's been they saw something different in me. They saw that I love Jesus. They saw that I love them. They saw that I put up with all their questions or their antagonistic attitude or whatever, and I just loved them through it all. And slowly it whittled at them, and they said, I'll visit that church. The reason it works that way is because you and I are not Jesus. We are not their Savior. If they're unwilling to come and see Him, then nothing will change, which means we need to show them more than just the right answers. They need to see Jesus in us. They need to see Jesus in the Scriptures. They need to see them, Him themselves. Well, something convinced Nathaniel to come. Maybe it was the fact that Philip was just, I know, it is, just, you got to come, man, you got to come. Sometimes that's it. You know, they're like, ah, dude, I don't want to argue with you. You need to come to church with me. Sometimes that's it. Just keep, you need to come, man, you need to come. Jesus is awesome. I love him. He's done a work in my life. You just need to come. Whatever it was, something convinced Nathaniel to come, even though his original opinion was that this is a waste of time. So what does he find when he meets Jesus? Look at verse 47. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Jesus sees Nathanael coming. It's not like when Andrew and John were following Jesus. He turns around and he kind of looks at him and he goes, What do you guys need? What are you looking for? 
It's not when he meets Peter and he just fastens his eyes on Peter and he's like, your name's Simon, but it's not going to stay Simon. I'm going to turn you into something else. This is one where he just casually notices somebody's coming. And as Nate gets into range to hear Jesus, Jesus says something not to him, but about him to the other four guys there, to John, Andrew, Peter, and James. And he says to them, behold, which means, look, check this out, guys, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. It means an Israelite in truth, in reality, in whom there's no trickery, no deceit, no falsehood. In other words, look, guys, we've got a bona fide, genuine Israelite in our midst. Now, what a weird thing to say when the only people here that are in the midst of your hearing of your voice are all Israelites. What is he saying? What are you saying about my mom? You know, what was he saying? If you're there, like, what are you thinking? I'm like, I'm, I'm an Israelite. Do I need to get a blood test for you, Jesus? What do you mean? And what does Jesus mean? Well, Paul puts it this way in Romans 9, verse 6. He says, there are not all Israel who are called Israel. Where did the name Israel come from? Well, it came from a guy who originally had a different name, Jacob, right? Jacob was given the name Israel because God was going to make him into a different person. Remember Jacob? I love Jacob. He's probably my, my favorite character in the Bible. I relate to him a lot. Jacob, his name means what? Heel catcher, dirty, sneaky thief, right? Always doing whatever I got to do to get ahead get my way out of any situation I could get myself into, right? I'm in charge. I'll take care of myself and I'll get it done. I'll do whatever I have to do to do it. That's Jacob. And God comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you a new name. That's not going to be your life anymore. Jacob had run out of ground to run. He had burned bridges with his family. He had burned bridges with his wife's family. And now he's got Esau coming at him one direction. He's got Laban coming at him from another direction. And he sends off his family toward Esau with the hope that if things don't go well, at least it might buy me some time to get away. And while he's there up on the hill thinking about what to do, how do I get out of this one? Because he's feeling pretty cornered. God comes out of, the, you know, out of the trees with his WWE outfit on and they wrestle all night long. No, no, Jacob all night like, no, 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 I got this, I got this, I got this, I can figure this out. I, you know, if I, worse comes to worse, I'll just run. And finally, God could have done this at any moment all night. He just goes, boop, touches him in the hip, and now I can't run. And the Bible tells us in one of the minor prophets, it says that with tears streaming down his, his face, he, he's clinging to God. He says, he says I got to go, Jacob. It's morning. You got, you got stuff to do. You got stuff to take care of. You got this, Right? And Jacob's like, please don't leave without blessing me. You ever been there before? You're just weeping. You go, God, if you don't do something, if you don't bless me somehow, I'm, I'm, it's it. It's over. What if God came to you and said, all right, I'll help you out. What's your name? What's my name? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, for Jacob, it had to do with everything. Saying his name must have been one of the hardest words he ever spoke in that moment. What's your name? Everything I've been doing all night with you. Try to do it myself. Wiggle out of whatever I get myself into. Do whatever I got to do. To admit that. And the Lord looks at him and he goes, here's my blessing for you. That's not your name anymore. You're going to be called Israel. 
I'm going to be in charge now. I'm going to govern your life. Means to be ruled by God, led by God, governed by God. So the name Israel had great significance. When Jacob was acting like old Jacob, the Bible calls him Jacob. When he was following the Lord, he calls him Israel. But names have a habit of being a being attached without meaning as history moves on. And the reason behind the need for the name change was remembered less and less by the time Jesus came. That's why John the Baptist and later Jesus' sermons of repentance, it was controversial. Why would Israelites need to repent? We're already God's people. How do we become God's people when you're already God's people? In fact, it's interesting if you look at much of the preaching in the book of Acts, it's about reminding God's people that they have a history of being more like Jacob than like Israel, of ruling themselves rather than being submitted to God, and then calling them to repent. So when Jesus says, behold, an Israelite, the real deal, now here's a guy who's governed by God. This guy's got a genuine heart for the Lord. He's a real deal. Now that's something only Nathaniel and God would know, Right? which is why Nathanael reacts the way he does. Look at verse 48. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me, the King James says. In other words, from where do you get me? The word know here refers not to like head knowledge, it refers to experiential knowledge. Where did you get me? Where did you connect to me that you know me so well? Nathanael never met Jesus, and Jesus could not have guessed something that specific. What unknown connection do you have to me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called you, for he said, Come and see. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That phrase, when you were under the fig tree, it includes the going there and then the arriving there and then the being there. Fig trees are all over Israel because the climate's so arid there, shade is crucial. Uh, trees are almost like ancient air conditioning, still are. People went there to rest or to think or even sometimes to pray. The Bible doesn't tell us why Nathaniel went there, but while Nathaniel thought he was alone, Jesus says, you weren't. You were not. He doesn't say, God revealed to me that you went to the fig tree. He doesn't say, an angel told me you went to the fig tree. Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you there. Literally, the phrase means the entire process of you deciding to go, going, getting there, and whatever you did there, it was like a big picture snapshot to me. I saw the whole thing. Now, there's only one person in the universe who can see the process of time as a snapshot. There's only one person in the universe who knows a human heart, and that's the Lord, right? Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, Oh, Lord, search me, search my heart, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me, right? He says, Lord, you know me better than I know me, right? The only, only one person who can do that. Jesus is indeed 100% human, but he's also 100% God. And that's one of the things that's a challenge to try to understand in our, these things, our brain. We try to fully comprehend the concept of the triune nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Try it, you'll break your brain. It just doesn't, eventually you come to a point where you're like, I don't understand the concept. Well, the incarnation is similar. I said, well, God became a human being. Okay. And he lived in our midst and he, he lived like we have to live. And, and so, wait a second. So how can he know this stuff? Because he was also 100% God. Well, wait a second. If he's 100% God, how could he wake up in the morning and go, you know what? This was the plan, but now I've got to go get Philip. If you're God, how did you not know that the day before? 
This is the problem that when we try to fully understand the concept of God, the incarnation of God being, uh, Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, is there's parts where we go, oh, wait a second, how does this work? Were you like 75% God and 25% man? No, 100% of both. Then how come sometimes you act like you don't know things, right? And how come sometimes you've got full access to all the things that you would know as God? To which the Bible would say, correct, you got it now. Here's how it works. At any moment of Jesus' earthly life, he had access to all the privileges of being God. Anytime. But often he chose not to access those things. Often he chose to walk like we have to walk. But sometimes he did access those things. And this is one of those times. It's one of those times. Now, Nathaniel, his response shows that in that moment, that reality hit him, that this is not a mere man he's talking to, that John the Baptist was right, that the Messiah is God, become a human being. And so he says in verse 49, Rabbi, Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, Rabbi, that's that second level of respect title, my teacher. You're going to be my teacher now. And thus we have another personal testimony. We had Philip's earlier. This is the guy. We found the guy that all the Old Testament prophecies spoke about. And now Nathaniel, his declaration of his encounter with Jesus is he's the son of God and the king of Israel. Nathaniel declares who Jesus is. I saw his glory. I became his follower. He became my rabbi. And the glory he saw caused him to declare two things about Jesus. You are God the son and you're the promised Messiah. Now, we read about all of that in Psalm 2. It says, you know, the world is banding, it's prophesying about the time of, uh, singing about the time when, the end times, when the world will band together beneath the banner of the Antichrist and rebel against God together. And it says, you know, I mean, what can the Lord do? I mean, it'd be like, you know, it'd be like a bunch of, I mean, granted, ants have gotten the better of me a couple times, but it'd be like a bunch of them just marching up to me like, bring your worst, we're going to take you out. Get some borax and Dead. God laughs, it says. I mean, the idea is silly. It's, it's, it's foolish. He holds them in derision. I'm, I'm not even going to take this seriously. Like, I'm just going to deal with it. Because I've declared, I've given to my son the nations. You're not going to stop that. As we read, it talks about, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. I've given you the nations. The idea of God the son being the king of Israel, it's all there in the Old Testament. The Scriptures taught that the Messiah would be God's Son and the King of Israel. And Nathaniel had either read or heard those verses that declared this, and now he believes. Again, I must point out the rapid, radical change of mind. I mean, just a little while earlier, Nate's saying, there's no way the Messiah is from Nazareth. And now he makes the boldest declaration out of all of them. Being with Jesus changes us. It just does. That's why Philip told Nathaniel, come and see instead of arguing with him. If you spend time with him, Nate, he will change your mind. And he did. Now, could you imagine if you were the other five guys here? That rapid, radical change of mind happened to you, and now you're going, it's happening. It's happening to him, too. It's exciting, right? Like, you know, baby, Philip, you just had a conversation with him. Nothing could come out of that. Fine, I'll come. You know, and he gets there, and then you make a statement, and you're like, this is it. We're like on the cutting edge of Messiah stuff. It's exciting. 
It's a powerful moment, and yet Jesus puts the experience into the right perspective. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, after he makes this declaration of faith, says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You shall see greater things than these. Jesus isn't questioning Nathaniel's confession of faith. The question mark there at the end, it, it represents a delightful affirmation. You do believe? That's wonderful. I'm glad you now believe because you had a very different opinion of me when Philip first spoke to you. I saw that too. All it took for Nate to change his mind was Jesus showing just a bit of his glory. And he says, Nate, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You're going to see greater things. Greater means more surprising, more shocking. You're going to see more surprising, more shocking things than me knowing who you are before I meet you. And we'll start looking at some of those surprising miracles, like when we see the water turn to wine next Sunday. But for now, we need to pause and ask, well, why does Jesus bring this up to Nathaniel at this moment? Again, consider that these six guys have all made declarations about Jesus. Andrew said, we found the Messiah. Philip declared, we found the one the Old Testament predicted would come. And now Nathaniel declares, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. But did any of them really understand what that meant? Like, did they really understand what it meant when John the Baptist declared Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? We know they didn't. I can say with confidence they did not understand because when Jesus went to the cross, all of them were sad and confused and scared, even though he told them what was going to happen. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah, the predicted, the one who fulfills all the prophecies, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God? What does that all mean? Well, Jesus gives these six guys the answer in his first recorded teaching in Scripture. Verse 51, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Verily, verily is a phrase only John uses. It just, it's the word amen, amen in the Greek, and it's, it means it's true and doubled for emphasis. This is an important truth, Nathaniel. In fact, it's something so important that all you need to understand it. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, the word you there is plural in the original language, so I'm, this is for all of you guys, not just Nathaniel. And he says, hereafter, in the future, all of you are going to see, you're going to, the word see means to experience an event in the future, and what is it? You're going to be see heaven open and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The word there open means standing opened. It means it stays open, it'll never be closed again. You're going to see the sky open up, never to be closed again, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon me, the Son of Man. This is a new title. Jesus says, I am the Son of God, Nathaniel, but I'm also the Son of Man. You asked if anything good could come out of Nazareth? The answer is yes. I'm just a, a man from Nazareth. I am God. I am God's Son, but I'm also a man from Nazareth. And I'm the one who's going to repair the gap that Adam caused. I'm going to bridge the gap between God and man because I'm both. And Isaiah 64, 1, Isaiah cried out. He was praying in the midst of all these things that God was saying was going to happen to his nation. He says, oh, Lord, I, I wish you'd just rend the heavens, rend the heavens and, and open up that we might see your glory and that the mountains might tremble again. The prophet is saying, Lord, I hear about and I read about the days when you came and you visited your people at Mount Sinai. Would you do it again? Would you rip open the heavens and your presence come in our midst? Banish all the, the gloomy clouds that have barred us from your face. Bring your presence like you did once. Bring it again like it was there in Mount Sinai. But Jesus says there was something planned that was way better than a repeat of the, how terrifying Sinai was for the people of Israel something that he had shown to Jacob a long time ago. 
You can read it in Genesis 28, verses 12 and 13. But as I told you the story of Jacob earlier, he stole his brother's birthright. And because of that, he has been forced to flee his home now because Esau plans to kill him. And he's headed somewhere, but he doesn't know where he's going. He's headed to go find his, his mom's side of the family in far off Haran. I mean, this is 365 miles by foot. I mean, it's a long trip. And this particular day when he has this dream, he's alone with rocks for a pillow. If life ever looked like it was over, it was now. And to make things worse, Jacob deserved it. This was all his fault. He'd been an awful brother, an awful son, and now he's paying for it. But into the middle of that, the Lord appears to him in this dream where he shows a ladder going from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And then God speaks to him and promises the covenant to him. He says, you're the one that the covenant's going to come through. Jacob wouldn't even enter into a relationship with the Lord for many years, but God's point to him was made. I still love you, Jacob, and I'm going to fix this mess that you've made. I'm going to rescue you from your sins. Well, Jesus here claims to be that ladder. He's the method of bridging the gap of our sin and God's holiness. He is the means of rescue. He's the way God's love, God's grace, and God's promise will be shown to us. These men would see more miracles and more proofs that Jesus was the Son of God and the King of Israel, but there was one miracle coming that would be greater than all of those, and it's the miracle that identifies Him with us. They would witness the shocking, horrifying, surprising, and wonderful miracle of the cross. And someday they would understand just how miraculous it was. From his very first teaching, Jesus had the cross in mind. It's not that the other things he said don't matter or aren't important. He had all sorts of teachings. But everything was leading to this ultimate goal, to rend the heavens and open the way for us to see God again through the cross. Amen? And that's a fitting thought to enter the celebration of the Lord's Supper, don't you think? We're going to remember what he did for us, where he ripped open the heavens, stepped into time, and now we have access to God. In the book of Hebrews, it says, it says let us come full of assurance into the holiest of all with hearts full of faith, knowing that we can be accepted in Christ by the Father, that we don't have to stay away. Now, you might say, well, I don't see the heavens opened right now. You're right. There is one more thought in Jesus' first teaching to these men. The heavens won't fully stand open until Jesus comes back. But here's the thought that we don't always have when we think about that. When Jesus comes back, he'll be God's son still, but he'll also still be the son of man. He'll still be the one who bridges the gap. He'll be one of us. God became a human to save us from our sins on the cross, and he's, he's still going to come and save us as the king of kings to rule and reign here for a thousand years. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Lord, we are so grateful for the testimonies of these men, and then, of course, your first teaching here that... Everything points to the cross. Everything points to you. So, Lord, we, as we enter this time of communing with you, of remembering what you've done for us on the cross as you've commanded us to do, we want to think about, Lord, all that you did for us. And we want to think about the fact that you're not done, that you're coming back for us too. So, Lord, now, as we move into a time of worship and song, we give you our hearts, we give you our minds to think on your love, to think of your cross, to think of your sacrifice. Or we are making this profession now that we believe too. So Lord, we give you this time now to 
Lord, just worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.